Welcome to Irish Exit Everything. My name is Frank, and the American dream of owning a single-family home with a white picket fence on your own private property is better described as a nightmare, and we can't seem to wake up. At this point, most Americans simply dream of some stability. The number of people experiencing homelessness on any given night in the U.S. in 2022 is estimated at roughly 552,000. These are people, human beings, living on the street. Other than the obvious safety risks and health issues, especially mental health issues associated with being unhoused, we're living in a heat apocalypse thanks to the climate crisis. The West Coast, for example, is experiencing record heat well into September. The EPA estimates about 1,300 heat-related deaths happen every year. And if you're experiencing homelessness, you're at even greater risk because where can you go to beat the heat? Or where do you find safety from once-in-a-thousand-year floods that are happening more and more frequently? Of course, this is all horrible, but it's not the whole picture. Housing instability and poverty are deeply intertwined, and it doesn't only manifest as homelessness. Increasing interest rates are turning would-be homeowners into lifelong renters because affordable mortgages are out of reach. And at the same time, the cost of rent is hitting new records, rising above $2,000 a month in many major cities. If you work a minimum wage job at 40 hours a week, you literally cannot afford that. Is that a symptom of folks just not working hard enough? And not only is the cost of rent going up, but homeowners and renters are responsible for the cost of utilities, which is also going up because of the global energy crisis. But that's a different conversation. The point is housing instability isn't just homelessness. Poverty often forces folks into an endless cycle of displacement between unaffordable housing and eviction, unaffordable housing and eviction. And because housing instability often leads to employment instability, can't keep down a steady job because you're dealing with an eviction or something like that. You often can't secure permanent housing. Either you can't get a mortgage or you can't pay outrageous rents. And once you have an eviction record, it's difficult to find a landlord who will rent out to you because being poor is criminalized. And of course, as rents go up, wages remain stagnant, public assistance is cut, so evictions become more likely, which again makes finding affordable long-term housing damn near impossible. This vicious cycle illustrates that having a roof over your head isn't just an issue of affordability. It's not a case of, oh, so-and-so is just living above their means. No, there's a long history of inequality and exploitation that brings us to this dire situation today. I've been debating with myself whether or not to cover a brief history of the housing crisis in the U.S. because even a brief history would take a good chunk of time and you know I'd like folks to actually listen to these episodes all the way through, and you're more likely to listen to a 10-minute episode rather than a 30-minute episode, right? But ultimately, I feel like I can't separate the current situation from the historical context, because the history shows us that this is an inevitable, reoccurring, man-made crisis within the capitalist system, because it comes down to the system prioritizing private housing over public housing. And this is a very simple yet vital distinction. Private housing is housing built to make a profit. Public housing is housing built to actually house people. Do you, you see the difference there and why that's important? The function of private housing is to make money, not to put a roof over someone's head. That's why a housing crisis is inevitable in capitalism. Because when you need to make more and more of a profit, how do you do that with housing? 
you raise the price of the house or raise rents. And when nobody can afford to pay you enough for you to make a profit, it just sits there. The property sits there, empty, while the folks who can't afford to pay are forced onto the streets. This is inevitable in capitalism. And I think it's important to talk about the history because, again, it illustrates this endless dance between private housing and housing instability. And it also shows that people have recognized this and resisted. But the people in power and the wealthy since day one have protected the status quo. So when we talk about the history of homelessness and housing instability in this country, we could start all the way back to the 16th century, even before the U.S. became an independent nation, when indigenous peoples were forcefully removed from their land, from their homes, if not killed, and placed onto ever-shrinking and underfunded reservations. The history of the U.S. as a colonialist settler state starts with land speculation, land theft, and then speculation. Or we could talk about the enslaved population who were forced to live in makeshift shacks, if that, while their labor built this country and created wealth for the private plantation owners. And once freed, were given no system of support, forced into homelessness and debt, and ended up right back into those plantations as sharecroppers, just so their labor could continue to be exploited in exchange for some semblance of housing. But the plantation owners would tell you, hey, at least they're free, right? Or we could talk about the thousands upon thousands of immigrants who were pouring into this country in the 19th and 20th centuries, and industrialization was bringing workers into the cities, and the folks had nowhere to go but slum tenements with no ventilation, no plumbing, and contagious diseases ran rampant. But let's jump to the Great Depression, when housing instability became much more visible. And when I say visible, I mean it was affecting more and more white people. And when something is more visible, it becomes much more difficult for the government to ignore if there's enough pressure from below. The working class has always struggled in this country, but in the Great Depression, an employment crisis paired with a housing crisis widened the struggle to many more people. And typically when there's that much of a widespread struggle, there's also solidarity. Whole neighborhoods would set up mutual aid networks and participate in rent riots and anti-eviction actions. Like when a landlord kicked out a tenant and moved all their stuff onto the sidewalk, their neighbors would literally just move everything back in. Maybe the most memorable images from the Great Depression were the shanty towns that were popping up all over the place, those rickety villages made of anything you could find, facetiously called Hoovervilles. Famously, in 1932, thousands of unhoused World War I veterans and their families set up Hoovervilles in Washington, D.C., and they were holding demonstrations demanding that they get the, the bonus checks they were promised for their service. President Hoover responded by having the U.S. Army destroy those shanty towns. So the housing crisis in the 30s is at a boiling point. There's widespread public outrage and the government was pressured to do something. And with his election, FDR promised exactly that. His new deal would do something. Not because Roosevelt was a comrade of the people, but because he was trying to save capitalism. You know, give the people just enough crumbs to get by. In 1933, the new Public Works Administration began constructing lots of things that were considered useful, like roads, bridges, dams, airports, and public housing, segregated public housing. In fact, one of the first federal public housing projects, Techwood Homes in Atlanta, demolished an integrated neighborhood to construct public housing for white families only, displacing the black families who had lived there previously. But obviously, the handful of public housing projects that the PWA constructed was nowhere near enough to meet the demand. Maybe that was intentional. 
and folks were still losing their homes in the depression. This is where things get kind of complicated, so bear with me. Uh, FDR created the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was a corporation that helped folks who were about to lose their homes by refinancing their mortgages. So obviously it only helped current homeowners. But this largely laid down the foundation for the Housing Act of 1934, which created the Federal Housing Administration, or FHA, and standardized the 30-year mortgage with low interest rates. So basically, the FHA encouraged banks to give out these mortgages to folks so they could buy a house. And the FHA told the banks, don't worry, if these people default on their mortgage, we got you. So we see here the government maintaining the status quo, right? Like, yeah, here's some public housing, but let's prioritize private housing by providing a path for folks to pay for it. Of course, banks aren't just going to give out mortgages to everyone, because what if everyone defaults? That's not profitable. It's also a risk for the government because they were insuring these mortgages. So the Homeowners Loan Corporation created these city maps that designated which neighborhoods would likely have folks with good credit and were worthy of receiving these mortgages. This is where the infamous term redlining comes from, because neighborhoods that were considered too hazardous to receive mortgages or any type of social service, really, were color-coded with red. And these were typically neighborhoods where people of color and lower-class white people lived. This is a prime example of institutional racism because white people were given government-backed mortgages, which allowed them to flee to the suburbs for decent private housing, while people of color were often stuck in slums. The Housing Act of 1937 improved upon the Housing Act of 1934 by establishing the U.S. Housing Authority, which loaned money to city housing authorities created by state governments to construct public housing for low-income families who would be responsible for half the rent. This doubled the amount of public housing projects, but they were intentionally segregated and lots of folks fell through the cracks, either remaining in the slums or unhoused. Let's be clear. The New Deal tried a bunch of different things, but what it didn't do was end the Great Depression. In fact, many folks lived in Hoovervilles well into the 1940s. It was World War II that boosted the economy, and that's not something we should finally reminisce about. Capitalism depending on war manufacturing to save the economy is another vicious and unsustainable cycle. But temporary housing, and I emphasize temporary because they were built to be temporary, temporary housing popped up all around private manufacturing companies during World War II so workers could live where they worked, which was more productive for the war effort. But because the economy was solely focused on war manufacturing, constructing new homes was halted. Vets came back from the war wanting to start a new life with their families, and that meant there was a demand for housing. So there was a huge migration to the suburbs, a migration of white veterans wanting to use their GI bills for housing. And they took the manufacturing jobs with them, uh, leaving people of color in the cities with not many options for work or housing. In his 1949 State of the Union address, President Truman recognized the need for every American family to have a decent home, and his Fair Deal program helped to partially accomplish that with the Housing Act of 1949, in which the federal government would pay cities to demolish slums and build high-rise public housing in their place. These are the infamous, sad-looking, 10-story buildings that folks typically think about when they think of public housing projects, but there was more demolition than there was construction. And when there was construction, it was segregated. But Truman explicitly said he wanted the private market to fill the housing need. 
So the government expanded the FHA mortgage insurance program, but redlining was still a thing. So folks in red districts couldn't get a low interest mortgage, which meant they were stuck in either the slums if the city didn't demolish them or in a public housing project in the same neighborhood with little access to jobs or social services. Even after the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision in 1954 intended to desegregate public schools, public housing was still separate and very much not equal. The 60s was a very turbulent time with the civil rights movement, the labor movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, and anti-Vietnam War protests. Feeling the pressure from all of these movements, LBJ expanded funding to housing programs and created the Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, which offered a new program of rent subsidies. But of course, systemic racism in housing still persisted. It took a whole civil rights movement, the assassination of MLK, and the protests and riots that followed for Congress to pass the Fair Housing Act of 1968. Not because they wanted to, but because they felt pressure from working class people. The Fair Housing Act banned discrimination in housing, and the government claimed it would search for opportunities to integrate housing, but this was all purely performative. Words on paper, because clearly there's still discrimination in housing today. But the act also gave rise to Section 8 vouchers, which would help some low-income families move into homes in the private market, but that doesn't help all families, and the families who did use Section 8 vouchers were often discriminated against. Well, it's difficult to come up with many solutions beyond that when there's no real desire to fix the problem, and in fact, the era of neoliberalism made the problem much worse. Ronnie Reagan cut the budget for housing assistance by billions of dollars. But ask any capitalist about a problem, and they'll tell you, the free market will deliver even if it's never delivered a solution for everyone. By the 1990s, the low-income housing tax credit program solidified the shift from public housing to affordable private housing, a new public-private partnership, as they say. Private developers were given tax credits from the government to build low-income affordable housing with local approval. But of course, wealthier neighborhoods didn't want low-income housing in their neck of the woods, which might sound like a pre-civil rights mindset, but... Dave Chappelle went viral a few months ago for this exact situation, threatening to pull his personal investments in an Ohio town if a low-income development plan went through. So these low-income developments would often end up in high-poverty neighborhoods, which meant they suffered from a lack of resources, poor education systems, not a lot of job opportunities, which doesn't solve the issue of poverty. And you can't just move into low-income housing. They're in high demand, so there are long waiting lists, requirements, or restrictions, I should say. So if you don't make the cut or can't get other assistance, like a Section 8 voucher, I guess you could try a shelter if there's room for you. Obviously, this all just made homelessness worse, and the condition of public housing that did exist was abysmal. Like Truman's plan for urban renewal in 1949, Clinton's Hope 6 program in 1992 demolished low-quality public housing with the intent to build better developments. But again, there was more demolition than there was construction, and then Bush cut funding in 2004. With virtually no federal funding for public housing, it's up to states and local communities to provide affordable housing. But affordable housing doesn't bring in profits like a model home or swanky condos. And not many folks can afford their dream home in suburbia, especially in the early 2000s. But don't worry, the banks and financial institutions and private investors were happy to help with their subprime mortgages and predatory lending, where they offered adjustable rates so people could afford mortgage payments initially. But of course, when life gives you a lemon, you squeeze the lemon for all of its juice before tossing it aside, which ultimately led to many, many people defaulting on their mortgages because they couldn't afford the increased payments. 
forcing millions of families to foreclose on their homes. This is when the proverbial housing bubble popped in 2008. Now there are all these foreclosed homes and lenders weren't getting payments, so they had to declare bankruptcy, which made traders and creditors panic and the stock markets crashed, sending us into a recession. Once again, the government was pressured to do something. Obama decided to bail out the banks and financial institutions and said, hey, no more predatory lending. And with that, the economy was saved. But working class people never actually recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. And then we were hit with a global pandemic and another recession, a recurring feature of capitalism. And as we know, this highlighted the existing economic and racial inequalities in this country, widened the struggle to many more Americans, and again, made it much more visible. The Biden administration had to do something. Sound familiar? So he enacted an eviction moratorium and mailed out some stimulus checks, which helped keep people housed for a while, I guess. But the federal eviction moratorium ended in August of last year, and the rare citywide eviction freezes across the country are also ending. There are going to be a lot more evictions soon, as big real estate firms are gobbling up the already low supply of housing units and holding them hostage. Fewer supply means higher demand and bigger profits for them. Average working class people are effectively priced out of home ownership and forced into the rental market. A third of households rent their homes where those prices are also increasing because landlords want a piece of the housing shortage pie. So what's the solution? If we insist on upholding private housing as the standard, we can't keep relying on rent assistance programs like vouchers. They're important, millions of families depend on them, but this assistance usually comes with requirements that many folks don't meet, like no criminal record or no previous evictions. And it doesn't stop landlords from raising the rent or evicting whenever they like. So we need rent control movements, which are movements of renters and homeowners demanding to cap rent increases at the cost of living. More affordable rents would translate to more affordable mortgages. On top of that, while rent control might work in one city, it might not work in another because there's nowhere to live in the first place. Remember, private developers and housing firms are holding on to empty units. So what we need is more housing, but we can't rely on privately developed affordable housing. We need federally and locally funded public housing. Narratives around public housing are that they're in disrepair and riddled with crime, so they're a waste of money, which ultimately leads to budget cuts. But these issues only exist because public housing doesn't receive the funding it needs to thrive. So it becomes a vicious cycle of budget cuts and broken windows. At the end of the day, it's not an issue of slums or shanty towns or projects. It's an issue of private ownership and economic inequality. Housing shouldn't be a commodity provided only to those who can afford it, because that's quickly becoming a very small number of people. Look, for anyone who owns their home, that's great. I'm not coming at you. I'm glad you have a roof over your head. But don't you want that for everyone else? What about the folks who have many more obstacles standing between them and home ownership? Housing is a human right, just like food, just like healthcare, just like education. To hold our human rights behind a paywall and then guard that paywall with armed guards is a feature of the capitalist system. Ultimately, it's up to working class people to apply pressure on the state to pass housing legislation, just like in the Great Depression and just like in the Civil Rights Movement. That's gonna require a strong movement of tenants' rights activists, labor unions, and many other organizations to make demands that ensure all people are housed. We all deserve and need shelter from the storm. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time.